Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I got a little cold, so please bear with me. Uh, this is one of those episodes that makes me shake my head and smile, which is a good way to be when you got a cold. Well, tonight is Christmas Eve, and I'm thinking of a guy with three kids who just might be playing Candyland tomorrow or the next day with those kids. A guy very few people would ever imagine that way. His name is Tucker Max, best-selling author who sold 5 million books with titles like I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell and Assholes Finish First. I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell was a New York Times number one bestseller and on the charts for something like six years. A blurb from the New York Times at the bottom of the cover reads, Highly entertaining and thoroughly reprehensible. The stories are filled with tales of debauchery. In fact, in his bibliography, there's a book titled Belligerence and Debauchery. But here's the thing. Tucker grew. Now he's got a beautiful wife and three kids. He's got a company that helps other people write books. It's called Scribe. It published 300 books last year. And that made me very curious for a lot of reasons. Lately, a lot of people have been reaching out to me for help with their books. I have no idea why this is. Someone suggested that the economy is great and has been for a while, and it's put people in the position to want to tell their stories. That could be. But I keep wondering why books have been able to make the leap when magazines and newspapers seem to be faltering. I wanted to talk with Tucker about this. I wanted to ask him about the book company he founded and why it's climbing the way it is. I wanted to know how debauchery turned into Candyland. All these questions get answered over the next hour or so, and at the end, Tucker will invite me to play Candyland with his kids. I'm going to do it. And I hope they're old enough to fit into sporty hoodies, sweatpants, and comfy tees. Because, Tucker, let me tell you, if you and your wife want the entire family to roam in comfort, let me know, and I'll come bearing gifts. Sportique, my sponsor, has the softest threads you can imagine. Just got a tweet the other day from Casey Proctor who said, Hey, at Cal Fussman, I've successfully converted at least three friends to Sportique hoodie fans. Keep up the good work, and I will. It makes me happy to know that my sponsor in this podcast is making the world a more comfortable place. Make your world a little more comfortable by going to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. Get comfortable, because here comes Tucker Max. How you doing, brother? Excellent, man. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, I was just reading a great speech that you gave at the University of Pittsburgh. 
Oh, wow. That was a long time ago, man. That was like a decade ago. Taking your way back, but it was really beautiful. I could imagine sitting in the audience uh, as a recent college grad, uh, getting your wisdom. Uh, and, you know, back then, like most people knew you through, I hope they served beer in hell and all of the great stories you had from carousing around. When you gave that speech, it it had that, but it also had a wisdom of somebody speaking from a distance, somebody who was going to go to a new place. And I'm wondering if you have gone to that new place with your publishing empire. Well, I don't know if it's an empire yet, man. We're doing well, but empire is a strong word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, you know, I guess I have, dude. Now that I think about it, when I gave that speech, I was, I was young, dumb, and not broke, but um, just barely out of broke. And now I'm like, I'm 44, which is not old, but like uh, old enough. I have a wife. Um, I have three kids. Uh, I, a company that, you know, is doing real well, 50 plus full-time employees, 170 freelancers we work with. We've done 1,500 books in, in five years. Yeah, so I, I do it. I mean, the, the personal change and transformation I've gone through over the last decade has been, it's hard for me to even remember who I was 10 years ago in some ways, you know? Whoa. Like it's, yeah. That did sound like an empire to me, let me tell you. 1,500 books? Yeah. Five years? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's a good start, man. Uh, it, it's not an empire yet, though, I don't think. We'll see. Well, what gave you the idea to go into book publishing? Because I've been through this now uh, for, oh, geez. 15 years or so, uh, writing books, watching what's happened to the publishing world. There's a huge shakeout uh, after the Great Recession of 08. And I was wondering if books, magazines, and the printed word were going to make it going forward. How did you see it at that time? I mean, I knew, I wasn't worried about that at all. Because just, all you have to do is look at history, man. I mean, there doesn't exist a media medium that uh, when new mediums came along, the old one was displaced. Like, it, you know, like for example, movies did not displace radio, TV did not displace movies. Now, you know, attention may shift and, and market share may shift, but, but, you know, even plays, plays have been around for thousands of years and they're still around and they're still a big deal. Hamilton's one of the big cultural touchstones, right? Mediums don't go away and, and books aren't going away. I wasn't worried about that. The, the idea honestly came from, like, I wish I could take credit for it, but basically I'm a dummy and it was thrust in my face. Like I was at an entrepreneur dinner and this woman that was there and she's, you know, this like amazing fashion entrepreneur. And uh, she asked me, she's like, Tucker, people have been asking me to write a book for 10 years. I tried to write it. The process is too much of a pain. Like I don't have time. I have kids. I have a family. I have a huge company. How can I get this book out of my head without having to go through this awful writing and publishing process? And so I looked at her and being like, at that point in my life, I was definitely I had the elitist writer mentality. And so I looked at her and I said, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she kind of laughed. She goes, yeah, kind of, a little bit, yeah. 
and and so then I get like a my my best elitist writer like nose in the air, and I'm like, well, everyone wants to be a star, but no one wants to do the hard work. And I start lecturing her about this, and this like this is a woman who's done ten times more in her life than I have, right? And and. and Anyway, so so she lets me ramble for about three minutes, you know, spouting off my cliches, and then she stops me. She said, "Tucker, this is an entrepreneur dinner. Are you an entrepreneur?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course I am." And she goes, "No, I, I don't think so, because a real <laughs> entrepreneur would help me solve my problem and not lecture me about hard work." Oh, and man. I, I know I was like, "Oh, it was such a gut punch," because right, I had nothing to say to that. She was exactly right, and so. I like. I became obsessed with this. How do I get? And the, the thing was, like, it, this couldn't be ghostwriting, right? She wanted it to be her words, her ideas. Uh, she just didn't want to have to go through the writing process. And so I'm like, well, how do I? How do we do this? And then it took me about two months because I'm slow. And then I realized, oh, of course, this is a solved problem. People figured this out two thousand years ago. They're called scribes. You know, Plato was a scribe uh, for uh, Socrates and. The apostles were scribes uh, for Jesus and, you know, go down the list. And it's like, okay, so I literally, I got on my whiteboard and I wrote down every single step it takes to write a book. And I realized that, like, only about 40% uh, of this of this, the, the necessary steps require the author. The rest can be essentially outsourced and done by other people. And so, and obviously, the 40% is important. It's key, but it's not, like, it's not even the bulk of the work. And so I, t- I told her, I said, listen, we're going to try this. I'm just going to call you up and I'm going to interview you. And you just talk about what you know. I'm not going to do any research on your subject. I'm not going to learn about it. It's your job to know everything. It's my job to get it out of your head into a book. And she's like, great, let's try it. And I, I'll be honest, Cal, I didn't think it was going to work. It worked great. We got a fantastic book out of her. And then um, I was like, I, I, this is how dumb I am. I'm like, okay, that was a cool project. She paid me. And I was like, you know, it was fun, cool. And like, I didn't even do it for the money. I just thought it was fun. And then she started referring people to me. And like these people would call me up and be like, hey, can you like write my book? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you know, the, like what you did for Melissa. I'm like, no, why would I do that? Like I've already, I've already solved this problem. Like why would I do it again? And so I had a, a friend um, uh, who had helped me with some projects, Zach. And I, I would just start referring them to him. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, all right, just do what I tell you to do. And I would like lay out the process. And I'm like, just give me, you know, half the money. He's like, cool. And so then, like, after about 10 of these, Zach's like, hey, dude, like, I need some help. So I started helping him hire other people. And then I went on this a podcast, and I talked about this process, it just totally tangentially, because the, 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 the podcast uh, host was, a, was dyslexic. And so we started talking about this. And he's like, oh, this is such a good idea. What's your company called? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what company? What are you talking about? And so, I, like, Zach and I had been joking with each other that we were delivering a book in a box to people. And so I'm like, I, it's called Book in a Box. And he's like, oh, everyone should go with Book in a Box and check it out. And then the next day, I get an email from somebody, and they're like, hey, I can't find this Book in a Box thing online. I want to sign up. And I'm like, and I knew the podcast wasn't out. So I was like, what the hell is this? It was the producer of that guy's podcast. Oh, man. And so I call Zach, and I'm like, Zach, I think we have, like, a big deal here. And Zach's like, dude, I've been trying to tell you this for three months, man. You, I'm, I'm flooded with work. And I'm like, oh, all right. And so then we, like, put up a landing page, and we did, like, $200,000 of business off of that one podcast. It was because it's kind of a big podcast. And then now we've built a company, and here we are. Okay, so let, let's break this down because, like, I've been doing this for people like Larry King, uh, the 
former CEO at Sony Music, Tommy Mottola. I mean, it takes a lot of time to write a book. How did you condense it so that it can be a solution to somebody's problem? Right, it's a great question. So there, there's a couple constraints, right? So it, um, I, I do about once or twice a year, I'll do a pure ghostwriting gig. And so like, like uh, we did Tiffany Haddish's book, right? And uh, it's called The Last Black Unicorn. It came out last year. It was one of the best-selling memoirs of the year. And, and I personally did that one. And I did that like kind of like what you're talking about, a pretty conventional way. Like I sat with her for a few days. I interviewed her. I assembled the book. It, that was more co-writing or ghostwriting. But uh, what the scribe method, what we call it, is we, we take people, it's nonfiction. It's usually not memoir-based. It's usually someone who has prescriptive nonfiction, meaning like they know how to do something and they're going to teach it to the reader. And then they have the idea in their head, right? So if, if it's 80% there, then you need more of a ghostwriting relationship. And then, that, then it's what you're talking about. It takes a long time and there's a lot of work on, on the head of the, the writer. But we have a very like detailed outline process and a very detailed like positioning and outline process. Like it's all on our site. Uh, it's called Scribe. Uh, the site ScribeWriting.com, and you can look at like we we post all of our stuff for free. We have a, a whole thing called Scribe Book School where we teach all of this for free. Um, you know, our, our company's services, and then if someone wants to do it on their own, cool. Here's here's how to do it. And so, anyway, what we what we've done is created a process where someone who's already a really good writer, like all the all of our writers are people who've spent decades in writing. They've done tons of books. They're very accomplished. And they follow our process, and it takes about 50 to 80 hours total, and maybe about 20-ish hours on the phone for the author, and then an, at least double that usually uh, for the writer um, in terms of uh, uh, writing this stuff. But, but the way we do it, it's so structured, because we position and then outline, and then we interview all the content out in the form of the outline, and then we get that transcribed. And so what comes back to the writer is essentially a really raw transcript, but it's a rough draft. And it's like, basically, all you have to do at that point is translate it into book prose. And so that's why we're able to charge, you know, only like 36,000 and do the publishing. When most good ghostwriters are anywhere from 75 to 150,000 or more, we're able to charge half that because we've taken so much of the artistry out of the process and made it simple step by step. But again, like I said, it doesn't work with all books. It only works with authors, prescriptive nonfiction. They know what they want to say. They just don't want to sit down and type it out. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. I, as I'm listening to it, it just sounds to me like this is perfect for uh, people who have a reason to do the book. They must like want to pass on some lessons to either go out and get business or or speak is that am i in the right ballpark mm -hmm. yeah basically uh, most of our clients are high level coaches or consultants they're entrepreneurs they're business owners they're high level executives they're people who have really valuable knowledge and wisdom in their heads Right, and the, and that that knowledge and wisdom can help other people, but they're almost never writers, or they don't have the time to write, and so they need us to essentially take what's in their head, structure it properly, 
into a book in their words and their voice. And we've built a, a really good process for that. Yeah. And, and do you sit in the leadership role here or did you found this and step aside? How did that work? Because you were asked to think of this as an entrepreneur. Did you stay an entrepreneur or is part of the writer in you still there? How do you balance it? Yeah, so I, I'm a terrible, terrible business person. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm actually a pretty decent entrepreneur. If, if you define an entrepreneur as coming up with an idea and putting it into, into, into practice, then I'm, I'm okay, right? I, like, I mean, you heard the origin story of the company. I'm not that great because I didn't see all of this opportunity. It kind of had to be thrust into my face. But I'm good enough that when it's pushed into my face, I can make it exist, right? But our company, we did about, we got to about two and a half million in sales in a year and a half, which is pretty good. Um, but the, at that point, the wheels started coming off. That's when we, we, we hit about eight to 10 full-time people. And when you hit eight to 10, then you kind of need a management layer, right? And you need really defined processes and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm bad at that, man. That is not my thing. And so um, we, we got lucky. One of our clients was the uh, president of this really big, uh, not really big, but big software company in Austin. And um, he, he was kind of bored with it. He wasn't a software guy, he just scaled that company. He didn't start it, he just scaled it. And he scaled it from like two million to 100 million. And he was kind of looking for his next thing and he loved our company. But like he saw like how great our product was but how messed up our business was, right? Uh, and so he started helping us and then eventually I'm like, look, dude, can you just come run this company? Because <laughs> I, I can't do it, man. <laughs> and it was the greatest decision. It was the best, man. When I stepped aside as CEO for this guy, his name is JT McCormick. It was, oh my God, it, it felt like a million pounds were off my back. My wife, my wife likes JT, I think, more than she likes me because she's like, he gave me my husband back, you know? <laughs> like I wasn't stressed about a P&L or oh, managing man. people because I'm just bad at that, man. I'm good at being a creator and a creative and a visionary and then having other people turn those into clear, defined processes and execute. And so he built our team. Uh, like they all love him. They deal with me and they like me and they tolerate me, but they love him. And that's the way, you know, like a leader should be loved. I don't have to be loved. I just have to do a really good job at what I do. And so that that's kind of the dynamic we have. Okay. So now I am highly intrigued because I find myself in a similar situation where I transitioned from writer to speaker, podcaster, CEO of a business. We're doing pretty well now, but I have a feeling very much like you. Uh, I am more of the creator and it might be smart for me to have somebody come in and do what they do best, meaning like run the show. I, I Listen, I, I don't know specifically about your situation. I can just tell you, my experience, it was the greatest decision of my life. Like maybe even more than a personal decision because it was like, there's nothing more frustrating than, than doing something you're not good at and you don't like. And that's what I was, like I, I liked starting the business, right? I liked creating the process and I liked figuring all that out and that was really fun for me, but it wasn't fun turning it into a business, you know? Like it was, honestly, it was hell. I hated it. <laughs> like, 
And so, uh, what what are the worst parts to getting the business going after you're solving that person's initial well, problem? See, Cal, the, here's the thing that I didn't really fully realize, man, is that scaling a business and creating a product, let's say, or service, are totally different things. Like, and, and, Oh, that's right. what I'm finding and the, out. the perfect oh, example is like my CEO, like we joke that he doesn't know the difference between an adjective and an adverb. And he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about books or writing. Like he's mildly dyslexic. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's a brilliant guy, but he's not a writer. He doesn't know anything about books or writing. What he understands is the business of business. And he understands people. Understanding cash flow, understanding insurance, understanding how to um, uh, coach and mentor people, how to hire people, how to pay properly, how to promote, how to set up processes, how to, how to train your managers, how to make sure, I mean, all these things that every company has to have above a certain size, that's like its own skill set, right? And so imagine, think of it like a chef loves preparing food, but, but what, what's everything else that has to go into building a restaurant? Rent, you know, like a, a logistics, getting the food there. There's a million things, right? And and so, like, I think of it like I'm the chef in a lot of ways, and JT's like the general manager of the restaurant. And and, and a lot of people give all the attention to the chef, but the GM is just as important, you know. And in fact, in our company, I, I would say JT's more important because once we got the process dialed in and we got the product kind of created and the right people hired. I, then I, they don't need me anymore, man. Like I, my job now is to create new products. Like right now, I'm creating. My job this year is to create um, our memoir product. Like, like uh, you know, like we have our thing for nonfiction prescriptive books. We're gonna do the same thing for memoirs, um, and that's my job is to create that. And then when it's done, when it's w- working and everything's fantastic, then I hand it to JT and the team, and they scale it. So, what's the difference between the process between creating a memoir? and creating a book of information, lessons, teaching. Yeah, they're totally, totally different. So um, the, the main difference is that information is, a, is for the reader, right? So if I'm writing a book, like, I, like my last book was called The Scribe Method, you know, the, the best way to write a nonfiction book. I, I can't even remember what the subtitle is. But the, the point is, I don't need to write a book on how to write a book. I know how to write a book. That's entirely for the reader and that's entirely for my business, right? And so like like I did that for other people, which is cool, you know, because it helps them and then that helps us and, and, and we're all great. A memoir is a totally different thing. A memoir done right is about uncovering and then writing your truth, which is a fundamentally different thing. And that truth can be for other people. And the best truths are universal and, and impact other people as much as they impact you. But a great memoir has got to start with what is my truth and how do I speak it as honestly and authentically as possible. Um, we like to say you write for yourself and then edit for your reader when you're doing memoir. Um, and there's a million other details involved with it. But like, honestly, man, like, the, the memoir, we've done a couple of the memoir workshops. We, we're, we're kind of running them small and, and closed beta right now. They're not even advertised yet. But like the way we do them is essentially therapy, man. Like it is, it is probably eight, 20% is teaching how to write and structure a memoir because it's actually really easy. I mean, I could explain it in 10 minutes. The rest is, 
is exercises and things to help people uncover what is it they want to say. And it all starts with the name. You're going to love the name. We don't call it a memoir workshop. We call it One Last Book. Because the idea is, like, if you could only write one book, you know, one more book and that was it, what would you say? That's what we're trying to get people to do, is to put their soul, what the thing it is that they must say into that book. Do you need like really good interviewers to pull that out of people or do can people find it within themselves? Because I would know a lot of people who would get lost if you pose that to them. Yeah, so um, the memoir stuff we don't do as an interview. We kind of have two different processes. We have one that's book coaching and one you write it yourself and we coach you through it. We call that guided author. And then we have another one where we interview you what we talked about before, and then and we write it. That's called Scribe Professional, right? And so um, we can do either one. We have done the interview process with memoirs, but you're right, it's tough. It doesn't work with everybody. The One Last Book workshop that we're creating, we're creating that essentially for people who feel like they're ready to write their truth, but they don't know where to start or how to go through it. And so I partnered with this guy named Philip McKernan, who is one of the best like emotional mindset coaches that I've ever met. He coaches like Olympians and all these big CEOs and famous people, but like he's incredible at getting people to open up. And so like I kind of handle mostly the writing side, although you know a little bit of the emotions and he's you know the emotion side and not much of the writing, but we kind of combine and we built the process together. And um, it's really good, man. It really does get people to look inside and to understand, okay, what is the thing that I want to say? And usually they're hiding from it. And so we have all these exercises we run them through. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Like a really good one, if people are stuck or they're like, I don't know what I want to say, is that we will have them get a picture of themselves when they were 10 years old and, and put it in front of them and then stare at it for like five minutes or 10 minutes. And then we have them write a letter. What did you need to hear at that age? Or what did that kid need to hear at that age? And then they'll start writing and dude, man, the waterworks just comp, people start crying and all this stuff. No, <laughs> oh, seriously, man. man. I mean, like they re it really comes out, man. And then we'll do like, there's probably 20 exercises we do like that leading up to the workshop and during the workshop. Um, and then usually by about the end of the first day, they know what they need to write about. And then it's really simple, man. It's like the algorithm for a memoir is the dead simplest thing. It is what happened, what did you feel about that, what did you learn? And then just keep repeating that. What happened, what'd you feel, what'd you learn? And you can, you can tell the story of your whole life, dude, with just those three questions. That's amazing exercise. I'm sitting and thinking of photos of myself at that age and trying to figure out what I'd wanna tell myself. That's really, that, that's really genius. Dude, Cal, I'll tell you, I, I mean, listen, I, I'll make the offer, man. Anytime you want to come to one of the workshops on me, I would be more than honored to have you do. We, we do a bunch more stuff like that. When, how often do you do the workshops? We've got one in January. We just started them. One January 11th and 12th, one February 25th and 26th. And where, where are they in Austin, where you are? Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, in Austin, Texas. Okay. You know what? I, I'm speaking in Austin in uh, April, I think. We, are you going to do these every month? Yeah, we will. We'll probably have one in April. 
Okay. All right. We'll, t- we'll talk about that down, down the road. You know, I- I'm just very curious now because you got me back to that state of being 10 years old. When you were 10, what books were you reading? Oh, man. There was a book that dominated my life at 10. It was called Hatchet. That book, man, it's like, oh, man. So it's a, the, basically this kid, his parents get divorced, and his dad moves out to, I don't know, somewhere in the wilds of Canada, uh, like working on an oil thing or whatever, and his, he lives with his mom in Toronto. And so in the summer, he goes to see his dad for two weeks, and he has to take um, a plane. Like, you know, he flies to a city, and he takes his little prop plane across, you know, like you know, the wilderness of Canada to the, where his dad is. And so w- one year when he's like 12 or 13, the prop plane the pilot like has a heart attack and the prop plane crashes in like a lake or something. And so like he's stuck and the plane sinks in the lake. He swims out, but like, you know, this is the middle of nowhere, Canada. And so he's stuck there (laughs) and it's like, uh, like, so what does he do? You know? And how does he get through it? Like, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's just true. That's what I felt like growing up. I felt totally alone and abandoned with no way out. And I just had to figure it out. And like that book, I've never read a book that captured, or at that point in my life, obviously, I'd never read a book that captured my life. It's by Gary Paulson. It's sitting right on my shelf. I can see it right there. I probably read that book, no joke, 30 or 40 times in my life still. Oh, does it bring new things with every reading or have you basically wrung all the juice out of it? No, it, it, it the, the book is the same, but... I see new layers of myself with each reading. I mean, that's, dude, that, that's what we tell people in the, in the One Last Book Workshop is we tell them, like, no one reads your book to learn about your life. No one cares about your life. They read your book to learn about their life. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And that's just, a, that's just the greatest example. Now, was that the first book that made that kind of impression on you? Or was there a lead up of books that when you hit that book, you, you were already hooked on books, but that book just hooked you to a point probably for the rest of your life? No, that was the book, man. That was the book. That was the thing that like... You know what it was, man, because I read it, I'm pretty sure I was exactly 10 when I read it. I might have been 11. And that was like, I just felt very lonely and very lost and very abandoned. Not just that I learned about myself, it's that I realized that there was a way out, right? And that like, I already knew I couldn't rely on my parents. I think up until that point, I wasn't sure what I could do. But that book showed me that books were the way out that everything I had been through or gone through, other people had gone through too. And that a lot of them had written down, or at least some of them had written down those experiences and their knowledge in a book. And so like, I'm doing this interview right now at my house, right? In my library, surrounded by 3,000 or maybe it's 2,000, whatever, thousands of books, right? And like, they were the way out for me, man. Hatchet is the book that taught me that. Wow. And, and is that like an adolescent book or is it a grown-up book that somehow you were able to jump into at 10? It, it's young adult. Um, it, the, the author, Gary Paulson, it's funny, man. It's one of those books like 
most kids' books, when you read them as an adult, you realize, oh, wow, this actually has really deep adult lessons, right? Um, it's definitely written uh, like young adult for like teenager, you know, like 10, 12. Um, but like I can still read it now and it's like it's still, in fact, it might be more moving now because there's so many subtleties in there. I don't think I understood, at least I understood about life, you know, when I was 10 that now I get, you know. And you know what's crazy, man, is, I mean, that, that book was the book for me, right? And I, I tried to read it. I have a five-year-old son and he loves books too. Um, mostly picture books, but he's starting to get into the words. And so I tried to read that to him the other day, and he like wasn't into it at all. And at first I was a little disappointed, or ups- like kind of upset and disappointed, and then I realized, oh, he has two loving parents who care about him, who are reading him books. Of course he wouldn't relate to a kid abandoned in the wilderness. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. So when you were 10 and reading that book, where where were you reading it? At home, like in, in my house. My parents were divorced. You know, I grew up with my mom. She was a flight attendant. She was gone all the time. So I had a lot of time alone. Um, you know, there were babysitters. There were people there. It's not like it, it, she wasn't such a monster. She left me alone at 10. But, like, um, I was basically alone. And so I had a lot of – I would read books or, you know, do stuff like that. Wow. So at 10 years old, you knew books are the way out. And, you know, we're going back to that speech that I mentioned at the top uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, where you're basically telling all the grads, hey, look, uh, you you don't know shit. (laughs) Like You just got your degree, but you are just at a point where you're going to go have to go out and show some courage and push things as far as you can to really truly understand who you are. Were you at that point at 10? No, I mean, not consciously, of course not, man. Like I wasn't, uh, I wasn't that smart. Um, it's, it was much more, I understood this intuitively at 10. You know, I, I've done a lot of therapy in my life, mostly as an adult, not really as a kid, but I've done a lot of therapy. And in the last couple of years, I've really gotten into plant medicines, you know, like, um, Therapeutic using, uh, uh, you know, MDMA therapy and psilocybin therapy, and they've really helped me connect with kind of my emotions from back when I was a kid. I checked out on my mom and my dad really early because I just realized they weren't coming. There's studies about this. Like, if you leave a baby alone, right, for a little while, after a while it starts crying, right, and then it'll start crying more and more and more, and they'll start getting frantic and panicky and freaking out, and then, but then if you know if you don't come it stops crying, right? Because it realizes no one's coming, right? And so like that happened enough to me as a kid that like, I mean, that's just who my parents were. They, they weren't terrible. Like no one beat me. No one sexually abused me. Like there is nothing like that, right? They just were sad, broken people who were too stuck in their own stuff to be able to be there as parents, you know? And so, like, I, I, I used to be very angry at them and all that kind of resentful and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was able to let all that go once I was able to kind of see who they were and understand, okay, like, they, they couldn't be there for me because they weren't even there for themselves, right? It took me probably 36 years before I was even able to connect with that, the idea that I was alone. And, and intellectually, I got it, right? But emotionally connecting with that and that feeling and the terror that comes, like I can think of the few times like, you know, I got three kids, like, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll put them down for a nap and then like they'll wake up and we won't hear 
you know? And like for five minutes or 10 minutes, right? And by the time we hear them, you know, they're screaming and they're like all a little panicky and we come get us like, okay, honey. And then they calm down and they're, they're fine, right? But like, that was my childhood. They just never, except they never came, you know? And, and, and I mean, my, like literally, my mother was a flight attendant for Pan Am. She would leave for weeks at a time and leave me with strangers, right? And like, again, none of the strangers did anything to me. They were all nice people. Like there was no horror stories like that, but it was just like, they're not, you're not connected to strangers. You know, they're, they're just babysitters or whatever. It was just a very lonely, disconnected childhood, you know, which created all kinds of problems. And it's taken me a long time to connect with that and then like feel that, let it go, process all that, you know? Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Did books enable you to ultimately get close to people? They help me understand people, man. Whenever people say, it's funny, like I know a lot of tech people and Asperger people and whatever who are like really bad at understanding people. Like I, I'm pretty good at it. I'm better than most. I, I wouldn't say I'm elite, but I'm much better than most people. And um, uh, I know a lot of people who are bad at it. And they always ask me like, how do you like learn people? And they, they want to read nonfiction about it. I'm like, eh, there's really not much nonfiction that's going to help you. Oh man. I'm like, well, what, should I, what should I read? I'm like, you need to read Game of Thrones and other, whatever fiction you like, go read all of it. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, dude, fiction, all fiction is, is the exploration of the inner states of people. And they're like, oh, man, I never thought about it. Like, like yeah, that's all it is. It's nothing else, right? Like, at least, you know, any fiction you want to read. And so, like, uh, I, I've learned more from Game, I mean, Game of Thrones, is just because just I finished reading it recently, it's a perfect example. Like, that, that book will teach you how power actually works you know, and how people actually are um, that, that are like, you know, in the, the game of power, right? The Game of Thrones is the same, same sort of thing. It's not all people in all places. It's just that, right? Um, and it just, I got, I could name thousands of books that are like the novels. Yeah, novels taught me how people think, no doubt. They did not teach me how to feel. You can't learn how to feel in any other way than feeling. And you know what's funny, man, is the thing that taught me really how to feel was my dog. Like, I had a dog named Murph that I got when I was, how old was I, 30, 30 or 31? And it was like, that dog, she taught me how to feel and how to love. Like, and like not, you can't love a dog the way you love a person. Like, I, I'm the biggest dog person on earth, and I just, I think if you love a dog the same way you love a person that, which I did for a while, I loved Murph more than I loved anyone else, that's because I was dysfunctional, right? And it takes nothing away from my relationship with my dog. I loved her and I still do. I mean, she's gone now, but um, what made a dog a good starter love for me or whatever <laughs> is that um, they're so loyal and they're so giving. And like, if you take one step to them, they'll take 10 to you. And they're so forgiving and they live in the moments they force you, they're a mirror for you, but not in a harsh, judgmental way. Dogs are, man, for me at least, and I've seen it happen with a lot of other people, dogs are kind of the bridge, you know, to learning how to love both humans and yourself, you know, other people and yourself. Because if you can't love other people, it usually means you can't love yourself, right? You, they, you learn to love yourself through loving other people. Yeah, for me, it was a dog. And then how did you transition to meeting the woman who was going to 
get together with you and bring you your children? Um, credit card. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, you know something like one of the great uh, blurbs on a book is uh, is under "I hope they serve beer in hell," where the New York Times reviewer wrote, "Highly entertaining and thoroughly reprehensible." <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I know. I liked that. That was pretty funny. You had to make some kind of leap to going through. Uh, a life of amazing sexual situations to finding somebody that you were going to trust and say, I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And you know what's funny, man, is the narrative in the movies or in culture is that the, you know, the bad boy changes for the love of a good woman, right? That's pretty much bullshit. That's not how it works. I had to change first so that I could be ready to be in a relationship with a good woman. I, I met plenty of great women when I was sort of like, you know, being single and drinking and, and partying and living that whole lifestyle. I met at least three or four amazing women that like I could have married, right? Like, uh, So you th- knew I mean, it at the time. You could look at them and say, okay, there she is. But then you probably must understood that you weren't ready. Yeah, of course. I wasn't ready. Uh, not remotely, right? But honestly, I towards the end of it, there was one or two I can think of that I like met, and I was like into them. Like I really, like I wanted to. It was very much a bad boy wants to settle down for this girl, and they were both amazing women, both of them, and they liked they were into me. But both of them were like, no, like I don't trust that you're gonna actually be in a in a functional relationship. And I, listen, I don't, I'm not angry at them. I don't blame them. I, at the time, I was probably a little pissed off. But, but now, looking back, I'm like, yeah, that, like, that proves they were smart, intelligent, emotionally mature women because nothing in my past had ever indicated that I would be ready for that relationship. So why would, they, like, why would any reasonable person think that I would just magically change? Do so magically change? And they were right. Like I, I thought in my head at the time, I thought I could and would. I was wrong. They were right. Like they were a hundred percent right. And they they made the smart decision based on who I was at that time. And so, like it was about 34 to 35, I started uh, psychoanalysis. Like, I, like see, I really seriously committed to talk therapy and I dove in and I went four times a week for four years. Like Whoa. I was serious, very serious. Yeah, dude. I no joke, man. And I think it was 35, actually. About two, two and a half years in, like I, the story is so funny, man. I'll, I'll tell you the whole story. So, like, I was talking to my therapist and I was like, or my analyst, and I was like, I'm very frustrated, you know, like, I don't know why, like, you know, like, because at that point I was kind of ready and, and I was telling myself I wanted to meet a girl and settle down. And I did, I believed it, right? And then she kind of looked at me and she goes, okay, Tucker, well, where are you meeting women? And I was like, uh, I don't know, like, women who email me or they come to my events or they, whatever, like basically women who come to me because I'm uh, well-known, right? Famous, whatever. And she's like, hold on. So you don't understand why you can't have a serious relationship with a girl who's coming to you because you're well-known for drinking and sleeping with a lot of women. And I was like, oh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> right? then, no, dude, and she was, she was such a good analyst, man. She just systematically picked like the whole thing apart, dude. Oh, then, then the best part, she's like, okay, well, and I'm like, no, 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 like, I'll, I'll meet a great girl, this or that. And she's like, okay, 
So describe this woman. And so I described this amazing woman. And then she looks at me and she goes, okay, that woman probably has a lot of options for guys, right? I'm like, yeah, of course she does. And she's like, well, why is she going to pick you? And I was like, because I'm awesome. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't say you're not awesome. She said, why would she pick you above other guys who are also awesome but have their shit together more, let's say, emotionally, relationship-wise? And I was like, oh, fuck, oh, come on. <laughs> And then, like, I mean, like, it was just, like, over and over with this, right? And so, like, but but it worked. And so what I realized was uh, that I was still, even though I told myself I wanted something, I had not made the changes in my life yet to actually facilitate that. So I, I, I literally stopped meeting women at events or, or women who were coming to me because I was Tucker Max, right? Um, nothing against that. It's just like those aren't the type of women that that were going to be the type that I wanted to have a relationship with. They, they weren't going to be strong, independent, have their own thing. Like those women aren't coming to me. I was going to have to go to them. And so then like she she made me like, you know, and of course my list of like what I wanted in, in, a, in a woman was like, five pages long, like a teenage girl, right? It was ridiculous. And she's like, okay, narrow it down to three must-haves and three nice-to-haves. And so I narrow, I got it down to to that. And then even that, she's like, is that a real woman? I'm like, yes, that is, it's a hard, she's hard to find and she's a baller, but she exists. And she's like, okay. And so then she's like, tell me what this woman's doing. Like, where does she spend her time? And so I thought about it and I made a list of like 50 things this woman might do. And then I realized like, okay, I didn't care about 40 of them, but 10 of them were things that I liked doing that I wasn't doing, right? And so I was like, all right. So I started like things like CrossFit or going to entrepreneurial meetups. Like the, the reason I was at that entrepreneurial dinner in New York where I, that I told the story about starting the company is because like that's because I, I went because I wanted to meet some awesome, smart women doing things, right? For about, it took about six months and then eventually, like, I, I didn't meet my wife at any of the activities. What happened was, because if you think about it, really smart, attractive women, they're not looking for, they have so many guys coming to them that they actually build a wall around them because they're just so tired of being hit on and objectified. And so the way you get to them is through their friends, right? And so you basically have to, like, prove to their friends that you're an awesome dude before they're ever gonna like introduce you, which is, I, I didn't really think about this ahead of time, but it's exactly what happened. So I, you know, I'd been working out on my own for years cause I, I, I didn't need to go to a group or whatever, but I realized that my wife would, it's highly likely she'd be doing CrossFit or something like it. So I started doing CrossFit, which I, you know, it's fine, I loved. But then my coach trained with, um, my coach was like a serious competitive CrossFitter as a woman. And she's like, yeah, like, when she found out I was single and like got to know me after six months, she's like, all right, let me introduce you to my friend. And of course she's like, I don't know if you can handle her. And I'm like, please introduce me to the woman I can't handle. Right. <laughs> and so, and so then like she brings her over to my place and of course, like in walks this like Viking queen. She's like six feet tall. She's like, I'm 180, 85 pounds. Like I'm a strong, you know, in shape guy. She was like 165 pounds and super in shape. So like, it wasn't like a big difference. Like we were the same height, almost the same way. Like she's a badass. And I'm like, all right. Uh, but anyway, we ended up like connecting really well. And um, you know, now here we are, three kids married and all that sort of stuff. And, and what's funny is like, I was, even, if I had met her even six months before, I don't think I would have been ready. You know, like it was like, as soon as I had done enough work, it was like, boom, there, there she was. And we were both, we were both at the exact right point in our lives. 
and we've grown so much together, you know. Um, but I, so the the answer to the question is, I had to do a lot of work on myself to get to the point where the woman that I wanted to be with would be, um, where I'd be the guy that she would want to be with, you know. What was her reaction when she read some of your books? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of funny. My friend, um, our mutual friend, tried to set us up for like I don't know three months. And it's funny, she's like, cause so my wife had never heard of me before our, our friend told her about me. And then she, she's like, oh, it's the writer, Tucker Max. And, and my wife's Veronica, and Veronica's like, who's that? And, and our friend was like, oh, just go Google him. Which is like not really the best thing you want to say about me if you're trying to you know, introduce to a potential woman. Right? And so like, she looks at my site, and it's like, you know, the first paragraph of my, of my old site. Uh, my name is Tucker Max, and I'm an asshole. I get inappropriately drunk and sleep with a bunch of women and whatever. It was like, you know, just the funny, obnoxious stuff I had on my site, right? And like, she calls up her friend and she's like, why would you want to introduce me to the to an asshole? And and Jen's like, our friend is like, no, 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 he's he's a great dude. This is he, like he just writes funny books. Like, that's all true, but it's not not the way you think. He's actually a fun, you know, he's really fun. And and, and Veronica was like, my wife was like, no, I'm gonna pass. Wow. And so it took her three months of pestering her. And then finally, like, like she was supposed to go on a date that night with somebody else, and the dude canceled or got sick or something. And so she's like, "Well, if the guy says he's an asshole, he's he should at least be funny." And so, all right, I'll go, I'll go see. And I was funny, and so here we are. <laughs> oh, you know what's what's super funny too is that her she told her mom that night. She's like, don't, "I'm going out with this guy. I don't want you to Google him. Uh, his name's Tucker Max." Uh, <laughs> And then, of course, so of course, her mom Googles. It's like, you can't tell your mom not to. Oh, no. And, oh, man. No, here's the best part, though. Her mom read, like, basically in two days, read all my books. Her mom loved them. Her mom thought they were the funniest things. Her mom thought it was, like, so hilarious. She wasn't su super certain about her daughter dating me. <laughs> but, like, when I met her mom, her mom was like, oh, like, we got along great. We still get along great. Like, you know the trope about you know mother-in-laws being a pain in the ass. Like I don't know where that comes from because my mother-in-law is amazing. I love her. Wow. You know that that's actually where I thought this might all go. That you had actually written out uh, all the stuff inside of you that had to come out in order to be able to be in the position to find the woman who was going to have your kids and your life with you. But it, it really sounds like it took a dog and a therapist and a lot of other things as well. Yep, exactly. No, it did, man. That, that's, when you have a traumatic event or a traumatic childhood, then it may, it's not your fault, but it is up to you to fix it, you know? And, and I, I mean that about me and everyone else. Like, I had, uh, listen, a lot of people have had worse childhoods, right? But a lot of people have had better. And mine was bad enough that it was bad. And, um, or it was very difficult for me, let's say. It might, who knows? For other people might have come out of it with no problem. But I didn't. It was hard for me. And, uh, and I was, I mean, I took a lot of skills from it. Like, it's part of what helped me become a great writer and, and tell funny stories and all that stuff. But then it also held me back in a lot of ways. And so I eventually had to be honest with myself about that and say, look, like, if I want to get where I want to go, then I've got to look inside and I've got to explore inside and I've got to make pain. I've got to see some painful things and make some difficult changes. And it took a long time, man, and it was not easy, but, and I'm still, God, it's not like I'm done. I probably walked 
10, 20% of the path, you know, like if that. Wow. You know what? I, I can see why the memoir part of Scribe is going to be fantastic because you've lived it and you, you know how to go That's to that That's the book place. I'm writing right now. That the book I'm writing right now is essentially how did I go from, you know, drinking party hookup guy to uh, like father, husband, business person, like, you know, doing uh, MDMA therapy and all this, you know, like, it's so funny, man. Like I go to bed at nine o'clock now <laughs> and I, I wake up, seriously, I wake up at six with my kids. Like I make them breakfast. We play like Candyland. <laughs> We do, like, I have the most boring life, but boring in the best way. Like, I have so much fun with it. I, it was inconceivable to me 15 years ago that you could have fun playing with three and five-year-olds. Like, I, th th there was not a, a bespoke hell you could have created for me that I would have hated more than that, except now I love it. I think it's super fun. All my friends call me up and they're like, oh, let's go to... Cabo and drink, and I'm like, no, dude, I like my family. <laughs> like, I'm not leaving. You know, everyone says they love their family, and I do, but I actually like them too. I don't want to leave them unless I have to. Oh, you know? man. Well, now you got me really curious. You know, I'm going to come out to Austin. I'm going to do your workshop, and I'm going to meet your family. Maybe I'll play Candyland too. <laughs> you are welcome to come over for dinner, man. They love you. Just, I'm just warning you that they're, they're they're young and they're little hellions, man. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less. I'm looking forward to that. It's gonna be. Um, you already have me looking forward to the next year. It's been a delightful hour, man, I, I, and it makes me so happy to see how your story took the arc and put you in the place where you're at which is enabling a lot of other people to take their stories and find their arc and get them down. It's really beautiful, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you. That's the entire point of the, of the One Last Book in the Memoir Workshop is exactly that. Well, I'm going to dive in. For now, I'm going to wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year. And can't wait to get this up on the podcast as soon as I can. Excellent. Thank you, man. All right, you say hello to your family. We'll see you soon. That about wraps it up. Want to thank Tim Ferriss, as always, for nudging me to start this podcast. A couple of weeks ago, I was able to tell my Santa suit story on Big Questions, and I've gotten so many emails from people who were delighted by it. It's all because of you, Tim. It all comes through you. Thank you. I want to thank my sponsor, Sportique, for getting behind me. I'm in my Sportique comfy tee and hoodie as I record this intro. I'm so glad I'm not reading off ad copy on a sheet of paper. I can tell you, I love my Sportiques, and I'm sure you will too. And if you want to start the new year in comfort, go to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com and use the offer code CAL for 20% discount. And let me know how you feel the first time you put those threads on. I want to thank everyone for listening. This podcast has sort of followed my life over the last two years and I'm always evolving. So big questions should evolve too. 
One thing I learned from interviewing Charles Schwab this year was to ask myself, what would I want if I were the customer? So I'm going to try and answer that question next year and make that answer happen. But I'd also appreciate if you'd help me out by letting me know who you'd like to hear as guests on Big Questions. That'll show me where we overlap. I'm hoping you have a great holiday season. I wish you the best new year ever. And I'm hoping that I'll get to clink glasses with you sometime down the tracks. Cheers! Thank you.